I know the process on how to build. So it's very easy for me to know, okay, this is what we have to do. Are the permits in? Have we demoed and secured the site? Like these are just simple things that, you know, one thing at a time, how did all of us get here? We literally got here by just putting one foot in front of the other. That's it. As long as you're moving and as long as you're willing to constantly look back and say to yourself, okay, I'm not perfect. What mistakes did I make? And reflect on the situation, learn, and then course correct and make sure that you put processes in place for next time that speak to you know whatever deficit you had previously, then you're able to improve. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. What's the real power of leverage? People think real estate is all about leveraging capital. Money is important, but what about the decisions we make? The things we do and don't do determine our success as investors. Choices and actions create success. Before we get to the bank, we make choices guided by mindset and by the things we do and don't know. If we want to succeed as investors, we need to leverage knowledge. We need to increase what we know so our actions pay bigger dividends. Join host Terry Schauer and Jean-Philippe Claude for conversations with leading experts in the real estate field. From mortgages to mindset, and from macroeconomics to local market trends. Grow your knowledge capital with us. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, where we seek advice to help us make better investing decisions. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome Ashley Wilson. Hello, Ashley. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, look, it's a real pleasure. When we were uh, discussing with Terry who we should have on between now and, and the end of the year, your name came up because you've been very successful. First, I'd like to take a minute or two, obviously, to introduce you. And I've actually found out about you from Bigger Pockets. You're a huge contributor. You're a Philadelphia-based real estate investor, and you focus a little bit more on uh, single family and flips. And over the last couple of years, you really put a lot more energy on multifamily and larger properties and have developed quite an expertise in scaling and in operational efficiency. And those are some of the topics that we were hoping to discuss with you today. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, okay. Just jumping into it, like a lot of investors start with, you know, maybe a couple single family homes or they buy a, a sixplex. And at first, not everyone realizes the importance of putting systems in place because this is an investment. It's supposed to be passive investment, by the way. And we, we actually end up putting a lot of time into it. So throughout your journey, uh, what point did you start to put systems in place and what were they? From the very beginning, I think it was out of a necessity because I had a W-2. I had a very busy life at the time that I first got started in real estate. And frankly, I wanted to be a lazy investor. I did not want to be disturbed by renters, phone calls. I did not want to have to deal with the cleaning company. I just didn't want to have to deal with anything, but I wanted to make money. And in doing so, I figured out that the more proactive I was at putting those systems in place and planning for every possible scenario, it then limited the interaction I had to have with renters. So I still, to this day, when there's a new process, I write down the process, make sure that it's easy to understand and it's able to be replicated. Mm -hmm. And that way we can not only document what's going on, but 
once it's on paper, it's amazing how you can look at something and realize that it's inefficient. So reviewing your processes, making sure the right people are involved in the process and they're not stepping on each other's toes and it's streamlined, I think is an outcome from putting something down on paper. So uh, let me just kind of get into a bit more the nitty gritty of this. So like, I think you've that's a good description of let's say the macro of like, okay, how do we go about you know, doing this on a macro level, but like, let's get into the nitty gritty. So maybe you've got one or two properties, three properties, you've got the construction guys on the one hand doing things, you've got your tenants on the other hand, what are some of the first things that you did specifically when you're kind of in that bootstrapping phase? You know, because I feel like a lot of people where they get stuck is they don't have time for full-time employees. Maybe they don't want to spend money on a property manager and they're thinking, okay, like obviously everyone wants to automate, but maybe the resources aren't there. So what advice would you have for that kind of getting over the initial hump of systematizing? Yeah. So I can give a few examples. First, my first foray into real estate was house hacking. So house hacking for anyone who's listening that doesn't know is when you have a residence or a space in which you reside in part of that space and you lease out the other space to offset your expenses. So let's say you lease out a bedroom or two bedrooms or a basement or even an office, you can lease out an office, right? So what I did was because once again, out of necessity, I had a W-2 at the time, full-time job. And I also too lived in that resident for nine months out of the year. And then the other three months I lived between us and Canada. My husband's Canadian and he was a professional hockey player. So during the season, we would rent out the bedrooms to other players on his team. And then during the summer, we would Airbnb while we weren't there. So gearing up for the summer, things that I would do is I would incentivize people to lease early so that my summer was completely booked full of tenants. And even if that was at a discounted rate, to me, what was more important was having the entire summer booked that I could plan for it as opposed to taking renters as the summer was going. And that's just something out of, you know, I don't want to be handling reservations when I'm on vacation in the summer. That's my mindset. That's where my mindset was. So what I did is I made sure that, and this is pre-technology with the keypads and, you know, just pre-programming on your phone, different lock combinations. So I had to have a ton of keys, copies of keys in case people got locked out. I had neighbors with keys. I had our cleaning company with keys. I had friends who lived in the area with keys just in case, you know, someone got locked out and we ran out of all the spares. And then I hid them also too throughout the community. So I had like, if you go take three steps left and then four steps straight, you find this little rock and under the rock. No. Um, but in reality, I did do that kind of that. And then I also too had multiple sets of linens. So one thing I noticed when I went on, I actually didn't use Airbnb because Airbnb wasn't the service that everyone used at that time. It was VRBO. And what I noticed when I went on VRBO was everyone had this four minimum four hour block where the unit wasn't rented. So someone had to check out by 10 a.m. They couldn't check back in until 2 p.m. when there was a turnover. And I thought to myself, well, if I was renting, I would want to be able to check in as early as possible. It might even be a reason why I would rent from one place versus the other. So I did mine in a two-hour block. So you had to check out by 10 a.m. You could check in by 12 p.m. And what I realized that created even more demand because 
people wanted to check in earlier. They didn't want a day wasted on vacation. So I bought multiple sets of linens. So instead of having the cleaning company do the laundry on site, they would do it off site. It was a little bit higher expense, but to me, it got the yield I wanted on the renters, which offset that expense. So I didn't care. And then other things I put in place is prior to their arrival, I had a whole workup on what to expect at the house where extra supplies were. Say, for example, if the fire alarm was beeping or smoke detector was beeping, you could switch out the batteries and where those batteries were. I just had everything outlined, sent via email. And then I also had a copy on site. So that copy on site was hung in a picture frame on the dining room wall. And it listed out, you know, if there's a plumbing issue, here's the contact person. If there's an electrical issue, here's the contact person. If it's a general question, here's the contact person. So all of those calls directly went to those people as opposed to me being a gatekeeper of those calls and getting those calls at 2 a.m. That made it to me as a complete hands-off business. I look back on it and actually... An employee of Bigger Pockets this past weekend asked me, they said they were looking back into how I got started. And they said, I can't believe with how successful you were with that and how you set it up to be so streamlined, you didn't go into short-term rentals. And I look back and I say to myself, how did I not go into it? I figured it out right away. I made hand over fist in terms of profits. It was so easy, but I just think I was so distracted by my W-2 and the golden handcuffs of being in my W-2. I couldn't see the forest between the trees. For better or for worse, my journey ended up in a different spot. I'm happy where I am, but it's crazy to me how systematizing things can make running a business so much easier and so much more profitable, but it takes hard work up front. You're going to do that hard work no matter where you do it. You're going to either do it up front, in the middle, throughout the entire process if you're not diligent about it. But to me, if you do it up front, you can make profit faster than you can if you drag out the process. And the system that you've described also really allow you to scale because you're not taking care of the other ones. You're really just focusing on on new acquisitions and where you want to take the business. So with your experience that you've just described here with the I was going to say short-term rentals, but I guess they weren't, the vacation rentals. At what point did you start to pivot and to go towards multifamily? Great question. So after short-term rentals, I actually went into uh, flipping high-end homes with my father. And we are celebrating actually this week, seven-year anniversary of that business, which is fantastic. But then with multifamily, so my husband's career took us over to Europe And he was playing in Europe and Russia for four years. And while he was playing over there, that's when I started the flipping business with my dad, which is crazy because I was over in Europe flipping in the US. But then we both realized that we wanted to go into commercial real estate and into multifamily. And we realized that large multifamily is a very personal relationship built business that is very hard to execute when you're abroad. It really involves your relationship with brokers and sellers, and you have to show a lot of FaceTime. So we decided to put that on hold until my husband retired and we came back to the States. So once he retired, we came back to the States. We decided to move forward with commercial real estate, but ultimately it aligned better with our why and our ultimate goals. We wanted to create generational wealth. We wanted to have financial freedom and you know everyone throws around that term, but what does that look like for us personally? It looks like anytime our children need us or we just want to be there, 
we have the freedom to do so. So if it's a sporting event, if it's volunteering at school, if you know, it's just, we take them out of school and go to the beach for the day. We did not want to be in a situation where we were unable to have that freedom. And so like, again, I want to kind of just, you know, get in there a little bit. So you make this transition to, I guess, multifamily and commercial real estate. So what were action items one and two on your list when you made that decision, right? So you're like, okay, I'm going to go from doing one segment of the business, which is flipping to this other type of business. So what exactly did you put in place to make that change? There are two things that you need to do. And these are the two things that I stress to everyone because no one is doing it, which is one is tell everyone and anyone who will listen to you that that's what you want to do. And two is lead with value. So many people lead with their deficits and they want to know, how can I get into this? You're doing this. This is so amazing. I see you doing a couple hundred units at a deal. I want to do that. How can I do that? How can I work with you? Well, you just wasted 15 seconds telling me things I already know about myself, and I still know nothing about you. What value do you provide? What value can you help with the business? What deficits have you already looked into my business and figured out that we have shortcoming? Every business has a shortcoming. Every person has a shortcoming. What are my deficits? What are my business deficits and exposures that you can provide value with and you lead with that? So that's exactly how I got into commercial real estate. I told everyone and anyone who listened to me that I wanted to get into commercial real estate and the value that I provided is I knew construction. I know construction management. I can manage large construction projects. I know how to streamline those projects, put in efficiencies, everything we just talked about, right? I know how to run a business very smoothly, especially construction management. And that's the value I provide because ultimately commercial real estate does not attract contractors and major commercial builders. It typically attracts very highly successful business-minded folks who are lawyers and doctors and looking for ways in which they can defer their taxes and diversify their retirement strategy. And those people are typically not brought up through construction. I am just a one-off. I was very lucky to have that influence in my life, both from my mother and my father. My dad was in construction. My mom was a company manager. So I literally am the product of those two influences. And that is valuable to people. And my first deal that I partnered on was exactly that. I led construction management and it was only a couple of weeks after we made this decision that we wanted to go into commercial real estate. Now, had we studied commercial real estate, had I understood the basis behind there, it wasn't like it was an overnight success story and I just got really lucky. We spent years learning about commercial real estate, but when I took action, it happened overnight because of all of the groundwork that I had done up to that point. Now it becomes really relevant, as you described, the, the prior experience that you had in flipping homes and in managing construction sites and getting those projects together and how well it would combine with buying a large multifamily. Obviously, I, I bet you focus on value add so that there's a lot of construction involved. Can you kind of like walk us through like the first larger deal that you did in commercial and how do you find it? How do you fund it? Do you have some investors and partners? And then what was your big role in that construction management position? 
So the first deal my partners found, you know, the example that I just gave, they already had it under contract and it was perfect because they knew nothing about construction. So they had a project. It was around a $2 million renovation plan. A large part of it was due to a building had burnt down while they were under contract and needed to be completely rebuilt. And that scared them. Working with the insurance company, rebuilding the property. And to me that, you know, I had done stuff similar to that. So to me, that wasn't a stretch for me. That wasn't like, oh, this is not something I'm capable of. It was a perfect situation in the sense that they needed someone with experience. I wanted to get into this space and gain experience, but I also wanted to provide value. So we both provided value to each other and that's how I got in. So in terms of managing of the project, it's, I hate this saying because I love elephants, but it's like, how do you swallow an elephant, you know, one bite at a time? And that's what it is. It's really just taking the entire project and breaking it down into digestible pieces to understand, okay, this is how we need to do this. But it's also understanding order of operations, right? So if you have a leak in a property, you don't fix the drywall first, you fix the roof first, because otherwise you fix the drywall, it's still leaking, you got to keep fixing that drywall, right? So that's kind of the concept is I know the process on how to build. So it's very easy for me to know, okay, this is what we have to do. Are the permits in? Have we demoed and secured the site? Like these are just simple things that, you know, one thing at a time. How did all of us get here? We literally got here by just putting one foot in front of the other. That's it. As long as you're moving and as long as you're willing to constantly look back and say to yourself, okay, I'm not perfect. What mistakes did I make? and reflect on the situation, learn, and then course correct and make sure that you put processes in place for next time that speak to, you know, whatever deficit you had previously, then you're able to improve. And case in point, not related to commercial real estate, but just to kind of put that in practice. The first year my dad and I were in business, we flipped a house and it took us nine and a half months to do. A year later, we flipped the exact same project except a larger scope, and it took us nine and a half weeks. And there's a reason why we were able to do that. When I first started out, I didn't know the entire process. My dad really educated me. And the type of mind that I have, unfortunately, I can't just focus on macro. I have to understand every micro step along the way. And then I got bored knowing that, and I just want to go to macro. So what I have to do is I have to learn every step of the process, put in a place, a plan that streamlines that process. And then I go to the macro view. And that's what I did there. So my dad explained, we literally did the house physically together every step of the way. And what I realized is a lot of things that he was saying had to occur sequentially could actually occur in parallel. It took a little bit of adjusting and it took, you know, working together with different subs and having everyone on board and being in a good working environment. But ultimately that's what got us from nine and a half months to nine and a half weeks. And if you take that same mindset and apply it to commercial, there's the multiplier effect. So in residential, you know, you're flipping, you get these surges of cash, but in multifamily because of cap rates and how evaluations are calculated, it's a multiplier. So by putting efficiencies in place today, it could have, you know, a 20 X in a five cap market return. Um, So things like that, I think are just make it like very enjoyable for me because I like problem solving. So that to me, you know, excites me. 
But I want to, uh, well, what we're kind of toggling between micro and macro, like maybe more of like a macro question. So I feel like a lot of our, you know, our audience who are kind of starting out, like investors who are kind of trying to get their feet, you know, I think in theory, it sounds good, like find a way that you can add value. But I think what happens when you start out is that you kind of get intimidated by the fact that everyone else is experienced and maybe people don't know what value they could bring to the table. I don't know if you have any advice. Maybe for you, it was just easy because you did have that construction background, but I don't know if you have any kind of reverse engineering advice as to how people can come into something with maybe someone who's more experienced and have a sense for what kind of value they can bring. I completely agree with you. I think people are intimidated and they're intimidated for frankly the wrong reason because they think real estate all boils down to construction and knowing real estate. But I can tell you that multifamily is a business. There's multiple aspects to that business. So every single person has value. And what's great about multifamily and what's great about all the different asset classes in real estate is you can take any single profession and apply it to a specific real estate asset class, depending on that asset class. So for example, in multifamily, someone who does marketing might think that they have no value to add, but you could come up with a brilliant way to market and attract tenants, which drives rents, or you could come up with ways to market and brand a company, which attracts investors. And that has huge value. Also accountants being able to understand the business side of multifamily and look for ways in which you can add value. Legal. I mean, I can't think of a profession that doesn't add value in the multifamily space. Engineers, you know, even if it's not related to commercial construction, there are so many parallels that carry over that it's probably something that you can easily understand better than someone else. So you might be the lead on a project that's overseeing new construction or a new build. So I just think that sometimes it's not necessarily, you know, it's like that thing where when I tell people I'm involved in real estate, they naturally default and think I'm a realtor, which I don't even have my license. I've never had my license. There's just so many different components of real estate that I think that if people think of it like that, then they can see, you know, I do have value. I'm really good at presenting. I'm really good at public speaking. Well, maybe you're the spokesperson for the company. Maybe you're the person who pitches the deals. Maybe you're someone who's a really good networker and can secure, you know, institutional funding or large investors. I feel like there's just so much value to add, whether it's your work experience, who you are personally, your connections, you know, your network in and of itself. I have yet to meet someone who can't provide value in some way or another. I think that's like really awesome advice. And I think that like, you know, it's it's really just a mindset flip. And I think like, as you say that, I've never thought of it that way, but it's absolutely so true that like people lead with their deficits and don't get their own mind thinking, what can I bring to this? Because you're absolutely right. You know, like even someone with good administrative experience, man, do I wish I had someone to knock on my door right now who wants to partner with me, who wants to just like organize my office, you know, like come. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it's all about putting in those hours and you are the average of the five people that you hang around the most with. So even if you don't have have, you know, the highest level of experience, let's say, for example, you're an excellent writer, and you proof what everyone's writing, you're going to learn the language, you're going to educate yourself and be around these people who are constantly doing things. And over time, that will build experience itself, you'll start to network with different people, you'll start to change your circle. And it's like, billionaires don't hang out with people who are struggling with 
day-to-day finances typically, right? They're hanging out with other billionaires, right? And that's kind of the thing is if I'm not someone to say like social climb your way up, but you got to do it a little bit. You got to look and say, you know, if I want to be in real estate, do I go home from work and turn on the TV and eat a bag of chips? Or do I go home and work on my mind, body, soul and actively learn and, you know, put on a podcast and go for a run or, you know, after the kids go to bed, I have kids. I know how much time is like so valuable when you have it to educate yourself. After the kids go to bed, are you just, you know, sitting down and being like exhausted or are you finding a way to energize yourself and use it as an extra hour or two to learn and to network with people? Because at the end of the day, it's the hustlers who are winning. It's the people who put in those extra hours Um, It's just like an athlete who trains. I mean, there's a reason why there's a coined term, the 10,000 hour rule, because of this whole idea of time invested is what actually makes someone an expert. The majority of us, you know, there's obviously those crazy people that we all are like, how do they, you know, overnight do it? But oftentimes when you look behind the curtain, it's because they've put in 10,000 hours. They just started before you or they're putting in extra time on nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's like, that's really very true. And, and I like the comment also about what kind of people you spend time with. And like, you know, one of the things I realized is like, f- you know, financial success is not the only metric. And like, I observed this, you know, we were off camera before we were just like chatting about like, uh, you know, the fact like that I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But like, let's say I hang out with top athletes in that field. I can completely take some of the stuff that they do and transfer it into real estate and vice versa. And it's not just because somebody has a lot of money. Like there's lots of starving athletes out there. But if you spend time with people who are at the top of whatever they do, like you end up absorbing some of that positive stuff and taking on some of their habits. So I think that's really great advice. As you just mentioned, like you become the, well, the average of the five people you hang out with. You are also the author of a book called The Only Woman in the Room. That was released about a year or two ago. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I can just imagine how going to events or conferences or, or real estate gatherings, and you must have just looked around and be like, uh, what am I doing here? It really just connects to what was just mentioned. And I'd love to hear about it. I actually always grew up being the only woman in the room, so to speak. My dad was in construction. My brother played team sports. I played individual sports. It was just always a thing that happened. I went to an all boys school that went co-ed, but it was still like three to one. When I went there, I lived with all boys in college my senior year. So it never really bothered me. I never really noticed it, didn't pay any mind to it until I went to this one conference and even previous conferences. Like I looked back at pictures and I'm like, I am the only girl in this picture. But this one conference, I think the reason why it was called out to me is because the co-founders of Investor, Andressa Gadelli and Liz Faircloth asked all the women in attendance to have lunch together. And out of 450 people at the conference, there were only 16 women at this table. And that to me was the first time I was like, where are all the women? You know, my husband and I attended the event together. We're both in real estate together. You don't have to invest with your spouse, but like, how are we the minority here? Like, how is there not more women in this space? You know, it's crazy to me. So that gave me the idea for the book. And I didn't know at that time that I would ask 19 other women to co-author it with me. Frankly, I thought I was going to just write it myself, but that doesn't provide value. What I noticed is keynote speakers always had a book behind their name and providing all of these women with a book behind their name, which is why it was so important to me to get to a bestsellers list, provides 
another credential for all of these women, which, by the way, didn't need that book, (laughs) to be frank. They are so experienced and so knowledgeable that each one of them can stand on their own and be a keynote speaker. But maybe it just, it follows the course of action for everyone else who preceded them as a keynote speaker. It also too highlighted all of the women who are doing real estate and provided, you know, frankly, 20 role models for other people to follow. And I'm not just talking about women. That wasn't, you know, all the authors, when we met together, all the women were like, do you want us to focus on being a woman? And I said, no, honestly, I don't. I don't. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to share your knowledge and share your inspiration, either or whatever you want to do, but here's your topic. And, you know, Some topics were like concerning alternative investments or building wealth or being young and getting into real estate. You know, it's never too late to change your path. You know, older in your life, you can start in real estate. That was more the takeaway messages. And what's interesting to me is some of the greatest feedback that I've received have actually been from men. They picked up the book and they said, you know, it's one of the best real estate books they've ever read. And these aren't people that it, like I was face to face with and they had to say it. They literally reached out to me and wrote me notes about, you know, how profound this book was for them. And they either had a daughter or sister or mother that they wanted to get involved in real estate. And that to me was really, really important. I have two daughters. I want them to feel that they can do anything and everything that they dream of. So it's important to me to lead by example and provide support for all of these women too. So yes, I definitely wanted to help the community at large, but I also wanted to propel the women that I thought should be in the spotlight already. Wow, that's really great. I wanted to ask, you know, another question. I think underneath a few of the things that you've uh, said today, I can hear the quotes that I can identify from, let's say, you know, Jim Rohn. I think it's Jim Rohn with the, the five people who are in the room. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time working on your mindset and and integrating some of those, like, I, I guess, self-improvement practices, if we want to put it that way. What uh, could you recommend? Maybe do you have like a top three of the the influences that have really like helped you work on your mindset? Ooh, that's a really good question. I don't think they're going to be the people that you probably think they are, but let's first start with, I I was a psychology undergrad. So I am very intrigued by understanding different perspectives and being open to different ways in which people think. And I think that the more open you are to different people's perspectives, it allows you to make the best decision because you become a microcosm for decision-making. So for example, there's a study that shows that you arrive at the best decisions when you have a diverse audience, but you arrive at the quickest decisions when you have a homogeneous audience. So I take that and I say to myself, okay, how do I make myself diverse? Like, how do I come up with the best decisions? And to me, it's by considering like every single angle, how people think of things. So that's what I try to do. And I try to stay positive. And the people who have influenced me and gotten me there is one that I always think of is my grandfather. So my grandfather picked me up from school every single day. He was almost like a parent. Both my parents worked. I grew up in lower middle class for sure, if not lower class. And my grandfather was a huge influence. Specifically, he went to college when he was 16. He was a brilliant man. And every single day he would 
educate me on something I didn't know. Like, for example, he would give me two words and I would have to know the difference, like omniescence and effervescent. And he would speak to the word origin and he would speak to what the difference of the word is, but he created this passion for me of learning. So that is someone who had a profound influence on me. So when I don't know something, it never frustrates me and never intimidates me. To me, just says that I need to seek to find that information. And that information is available either in a resource or in, and that resource could be either a book or a person. So that to me is obviously a huge impact on my life. My grandmother on my dad's, so my grandfather's on my dad mom's side and my grandmother on my dad's side was very influential because she was a spitfire. She worked when women weren't working. She was the head of the household. Everyone listened to her. And I don't mean in the house. I mean, also outside of the house, like she ran the show. And to me, that was a huge influence as a female role model that were equals, you know, to be in my grandmother's generation, that was very rare. So my grandmother had a huge impact on me and my mindset of my gender doesn't limit my capability. And then just in general, like all the other influences, I have a very good support system between my husband, my parents, my husband's parents. They allow us to do a lot of things that I think, you know, other people don't have the opportunity to do because they help us with our children. And, you know, that has a huge impact as well. But having a support system and having friends, that's one thing that I think people don't spend enough time on is they don't realize that they want all these things, but they're surrounding themselves with people who are not supportive. And I'm not saying just yes, people, because that's not helpful either. But I'm saying people that really intrigue you, support you when needed, challenge you when needed, and they understand that balance. So when we were at Bigger Pockets, for example, and I was with, you know, I call them my tribe, you know, my people there that I absolutely love. We spend a lot of time talking about not only things within a business that we're having hangups on, but also like where we are emotionally. We let down our guards. We tell exactly what's going on. We don't hold anything back, but we're also open to the criticism, the support, whatever is coming back at us. We're also open to that as well. So I think when you put yourself in a position that allows you to be vulnerable around people that are safe. And it's a good way to tell whether or not those people are safe. If you're vulnerable and they make you feel horrible, those are not the people you should be around. And if you're scared to even be that way, you're going to be scared, but there's a different type of scared. Scared of being attacked is different than scared of, okay, now I'm going to reveal my cards for the first time. What are they going to think? That's a different scared. So if you feel the latter, you're with the right group. If you feel scared because you're being attacked, I would just readjust your circle. But having a strong mindset, do I have bad days? Yes. But do I let those bad days carry on? No, I can't. I know my body very well. I know my mind very well. And I know that once I start going down that path, if I continue to go down that path, I'm not successful and I'm not a good role model for my family. So oftentimes I say to myself, if I saw my daughter having the same issue, what advice would I give her? And then I give the advice I would give her to myself. I think you both Axel and I are parents. Our kids are pretty young, but I think that's like some some good advice. Yeah. And I was actually taking two minutes to take it in and be like, wow, you're, yeah, that's spot on. 
Um, so I think we're kind of getting to the end of our time for today. I uh, want to just ask you something a bit more open-ended. Is there any one piece of advice you want to share with our audience before we kind of move on to conclude the interview? Keep moving. Just keep moving. Keep working hard. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it, but it, it's good that it's not easy. You don't want everyone to be doing it because then you know, it's harder to be successful because everyone's doing it. You just have to keep moving and you break away from the masses and then you break away from another group and you break away from another group and you keep moving. It's almost like you're running a marathon. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you just have to break away from one crowd and then break away from another crowd and break away from another crowd. And that's how you do it. But if I looked at myself even a year ago and said, I would have because currently we have a 409 unit property under contract. And a year ago, if someone said, a year from today, you're going to have a property under contract and it's 409 units, I would say no way. But it's just when we put the offer in, it was a logical, like, we can do this, you know, no big deal. You never know where you'll be in a year. And if you're ever down on yourself, think, or you're ever having a bad day, just look back a year before and say, a year ago, would I wish I would have had this problem that I'm dealing with today? And most of the time it's yes, you know, because you're only having that problem today because of whatever great situation you put yourself in. So it's not always bad. Good advice. Um, So Ashley, thank you for spending this time with us today. Where can our audience find you if they want to connect with you or follow some of your ideas? Yes. So my company's name is Bar Down Investments. So you can find us at bardowninvestments.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at badashinvestor. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's been, um, I know I'm going to take a little bit of time to, to, to take it in and reflect on it. Really inspiring. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. And for the audience, uh, keep listening into it. And we will see you in about two weeks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating. Leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.